Yes, so this is um, uh, an aspect of some work in progress. I am and have been for quite a while at work on a book on the nature of doctrine. So what kind of thing is doctrine? Why care about it? What roles does it play? And what you're going to get is a, um, an account of one of the chapters that I haven't written yet. So uh, you'll, anyone who's close enough to see, I haven't got a full text. This is from notes, and that's all that currently exists of this chapter. So uh, I'm abusing you by trying out something half formed on you in the hope that you can help me. Um, you'll notice as I go through, I hope, that I'm aiming mostly for my own benefit, I hope also possibly for readers' benefits, at a certain kind of simplicity. And uh, you'll understand that more when I've, I've got through. Um, and when I say I need your help, I really do want you to come back to me. If there are bits of this where you, you lose me or stop following the argument, because if you do, that's my fault, not your fault in most cases. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so please do. If you, know, you get to the bit of the argument where you think, oh, I was following you up till then and you've just made a move that makes no sense, note it down and ask me about it because I'm trying to eliminate those things and it's easier for other people to see those kinds of gaps than it is to see them yourself. Now, say a little bit more about what the question is that I'm posing in this particular chapter of, of this book. So I'm some kind of systematic theologian. I work on on Christian doctrine, so I spend time thinking and writing about um, the doctrine of the Incarnation, or the doctrine of creation, or the doctrine of the Trinity, those sorts of topics. Um, I'm also, as Karen said, involved in common awards, and involved in um, a certain kind of academic oversight of Anglican training, bits of Methodist training, certain other denominational training around the country. And uh, we insist that most of those students learn doctrine. They go on modules where they, they get doctrinal topics and I have some kind of role in overseeing that, in, in helping the churches insist on that. And I do think it's important, and I care about it. I think it matters to be good at thinking about these things and to try and spread good thinking about these things. On the other hand, if I go to um, my church outside Durham on a Sunday morning, I am pretty sure, I mean, morally certain, that I understand the doctrine of the Trinity better than anyone there. Now, the vicar gets close, no one else is <laughs> spitting distance. I really do. It's, that's not a huge claim. I can manipulate the concepts involved. I can talk about the history in a way that no one else in that, in that church can. And I do not think, there's a fairly deep conviction, I do not think that there's any interesting sense in which that fact means I know God better than the other people in that church. So, on the one hand, I work in care about, help press on other people, the study of Christian doctrine. On the other hand, I have this fairly deep conviction that there's something deeply screwy <laughs> about claiming that knowing the doctrine of the Trinity well means I know God better than other people. I really don't want to say that. So what kind of account can I give of the importance, the role of doctrine, the nature of doctrine, which does justice to those two things, or am I going to have to give up? Um, if I have to give up on one, 
I'll keep my job and start thinking different things about the church. But that's probably not the move with most integrity. So where I want to start in thinking this through is um, at a fairly simple level, thinking about the, the life of the church. And I want you to, to imagine the life of church as at least in part constituted by a whole set of practices of communication. Um, everything from you know, hymn singing to conversations over coffee, um, parish magazine articles, prayers with the dying, arguments in synod, the God slot at youth club, hearing confession, reading below the line on any Guardian article that mentions religion, all sorts of forms of communication sort of within the body of the church and outside what we normally think of the boundaries, interlocking in incredibly messy ways. You can think of the life of the church as this communicative life, all sorts of forms of speech and um, behaviour which communicates in, in non-verbal ways. The life of the church. That may not be all that's going on, but that's, that's um, one way of looking at the life of the church. And within that life, there are practices of communication that we could think of as involving teaching or witness. Practices that communicate something about God and God's ways with the world, about what it is that has called this church into being, about who it is that this church worships all sorts of other practices of communication as well but we have a church which is in part constituted by it's deeply shaped by all sorts of practices of communication within it which involve communicating something of the faith communicating something about god and god's ways with the world um, those take any number of forms and are carried out by in some ways by everyone who's in any way involved in the life of the church i'm not here meaning to move to start thinking about clerical figures or academic figures, thinking of these as practices which, you know, um, uh, are, exist in informal forms which are um, widespread and diverse and messy and some of them are convincing and some of them are unconvincing, the whole messy lot of forms of communication where something is being said to someone about God and God's ways with the world. So we've got the wide circle of communicative practices. Within that, we've got these practices which involve some kind of teaching or witness, using those terms very broadly. Now, within that, sort of third circle, getting a bit narrower, think about practices of communication where it makes sense to think that we could or should hold one another to account, with the we here being the sort of speaking from within the church, that people in the church should or could hold one another to account for what we say. We should uh, things we say where it makes sense to worry about what we should and should not say, what it's right to say and right not to say. So forms of communication, aspects of this teaching or witness, where we're in the realm of accountability. Um, think also of forms of communication where uh, the things that we say get articulated together. We say, you should say this because you say this, or because you say this thing, you shouldn't say that other thing. There are becauses and therefores involved in this. We've got sort of practices of teaching and witness where we hold ourselves accountable or, or believe we should be accountable or hold other people accountable and where some of that accountability travels over these connections between statements. There's an articulation of, of claims, becauses and therefores and so's. And where the content of these is about saying something about who God is and how God interacts with the world, God and God's ways with the world. We have 
practices within the life of the church which are, at least in principle, accountable, articulated, truth-claiming practices. If you want to uh, think about an example, think of saying, God loves you, don't be afraid, to an anxious child. Um, I take it most of us would think that there are at least questions to be asked about whether that's an appropriate thing to say, whether it's a true thing to say, whether you're uh, leading the child into a delusion which it will take years for them to shake off, or whether you're actually helping them understand something that they should understand and which genuinely can help them because it's true. There, there's an accountability there. There's an articulation there. God loves you so. We didn't actually say the so, but it was implicit. Don't be afraid. Um, and it involves saying something about God. So saying God loves you, don't be afraid to an anxious child is one of these sort of bits of teaching or witness which is in somewhere in the realm of accountability. There's some kind of articulation there and it involves some kind of, of truth-telling, attempted truth-telling about God and God's ways with the world. That's where we begin to get into the realm that I'd say is the realm of doctrine. And in what follows, I want you to try and keep that messy and vaguely edged space in mind and not slip into thinking that when I'm talking about doctrine I'm primarily talking about bishops gathered in a council issuing written statements with uh, defined authority. That's part of the picture but keep this much broader and messier picture in, in mind. Within that, so we've got these three circles, we've got another circle within this. Uh, the life of the church which goes on in this way with people engaging in these kinds of communicative practices in all sorts of ways we see emerging historically and you see when you sort of survey what's going on in the present that there are habits more visible in some people than in others of arranging some of this teaching around key points summarizing and gathering around summary points um, you find this particularly happens in contexts of more formal teaching where there's a deliberate attempt to pass on the faith either to people who are new to the church or to a new generation. So catechesis in particular, where um, there's a point in sort of summarising around key points, saying, well, let me explain sort of the overview of this faith of ours to you. It, it involves these basic truths. You also find these habits of, of summarising and gathering other statements around key points in controversy. One of the things you need in order to disagree with someone really sharply is to commensurate your claims and that's to bring them on to a level footing. To say, well, you know, there are these three key points where I say A, B and C and you say not A, not B and not C, which means you're wrong. Unless you've brought people together on some identifiable points, you can't disagree with them really well. So controversy tends to push people in the direction of forming summaries and gathering the mess of communication in which their opponents are involved and the mess in which they are involved into some orderly form around those summaries for the sake of pursuing a debate, identifying whether there really is a debate to be had. So within this messy, buzzing, confusing communicative life of the church, you find that um, practices of summarising and gathering of the kinds of teaching I've been talking about emerge and play a significant role in the way in which controversy is carried on and the way in which the faith is passed on. What I want to suggest at this point is, um, I hope, a fairly simple point. 
which is asking the question, how does doctrine relate to the life of the church? I think the best way of asking that question is to ask, how does this activity of summarising and gathering this particular kind of community practice, you know, this kind of teaching, how does that activity serve the wider life of which it's a part? Think of a kind of 1 Corinthians 12 picture of the body of Christ with many ministries, every member having its own ministry. If the whole body were afoot, how would it smell kind of territory? Um, one slight snigger. Um, <laughs> so think of that kind of picture. What we're asking is, OK, some people appear to think, some people like me, that they have the ministry of caring about and propagating these sorts of summaries and the ways in which other community practices can be gathered around them. Um, maybe it's because they're involved in catechesis, maybe it's because they're involved in controversy, but some people take upon themselves or have thrust upon them this ministry of caring about summaries of, of, of teaching of the kind I've been talking about. What sense can we make of that as one of the ministries which makes up the body of Christ? And the reason I want to pose the question in that way is because I don't want to go down the route of saying when we're thinking about how doctrine relates to the rest of the life of the church, we're thinking about how theory relates to practice. Because that makes it sound like on the practice side you've got lots of things that people do, and then on the theory side you've got ideas, and you, your task in understanding doctrine is to work out how the ideas and the things that people do can be stuck back together again. I think that's a misleading, unhelpful, um, and uh, nonsensical way of dividing things up. You've got an activity of theorising, which is one of the things that people do, in amongst a whole lot of other things that people do. And you're trying to understand how this activity done by particular people in the life of the church interacts with, contributes to, or um, undermines the rest of the life of the church. It's a question about how one ministry relates to the wider pattern of the ministries of this body. In the light of this, if I talk about the doctrine of the incarnation, what I mean in the first place is, as I say, not a statement that I can write down and give you here is the definitive form of the doctrine I'm talking about. But I mean a whole complex history of people engaged in these practices of summarising who gather quite a bit of what they want to say about the Christian faith around summary statements which say something about God becoming human in Jesus. And, you know, that's a, a really complex and messy bag of stuff that's gathered in that description, all sorts of descriptions and bits of the life of the church. But I'm talking about something that people do rather than primarily about an idea written down in an authoritative text, though authoritative texts are part of the picture. Now, in order to sort of push further into um, uh, why I am trying to puzzle this through, I want to talk about one of the ways in which I think uh, this relationship between the summarisers, the doctrinal theologians, and others goes wrong. A certain kind of unhealthy intellectualism. Now, one of the um, uh, things that happens when you are engaged in summarising particularly in context where those summaries are for the purpose either of controversy or, or of catechesis, is that um, you, uh, summary statements, which you sort of use again and again, it's easy for them to develop a standardised form. 
you see this in the development of creeds in the early church, that, that there's a real variety of creedal statements, and that variety over time starts throwing up more and more recognisable phrases um, and becomes more and more standardised um, for, for reasons both of controversy and catechesis. You end up with a sort of standardised vocabulary, and you also end up, remember I'm talking about statements that are sort of articulated together, you also end up, end up for the same reason, with some standardised ways of connecting those statements to one another. So you end up with a what looks begins to look like a technical vocabulary, a standardised, regularly deployed vocabulary, with a technical grammar governing it, i.e. a standardised, regularly deployed set of moves for connecting these things together. And as soon as that's a possibility, human beings being human beings, we know how to run with that, at least some of us know how to run with that, some of us like running with that kind of thing. And you can develop what, uh, using this term in the broadest possible sense, you've got all the ingredients you need for a scholasticism, which tries to refine the deployment of that standardised vocabulary, to refine our sense of, of the grammar of how the bits that go together further and further. Now, I don't think scholasticism is a bad thing. Um, I've not yet got to the bit where I say, well, it's a bad thing. But it's, you can see how the tendency emerges out of, quite naturally, this these processes of, of summarising. The point where you get a danger is where the gain, the joy, the excitement of refining the standardised vocabulary and its grammar leads you into deeply caring about distinctions or moves in that game which you can no longer find any way of connecting back to the wider weave of practices of which this summarising practice was supposedly a part, where you end up caring very deeply about whether we should say X or Y, where that's lost touch with whether X or Y have any ripples to cast out into the wider pool of Christian life. Now, I don't think that happens as often as critics of scholasticism think it happens. You know, there's very little in Aquinas, which I would say have crossed over that boundary. There is no example in medieval theology of people arguing about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, as far as I'm aware. That's a made-up slur. Nevertheless, it does happen. I'm occasionally tempted to look at some of the debates in which I engage and some of my colleagues in systematic theology engage and say it doesn't actually make a difference to anyone else in the church. This. Whether you read Bart in a McCormack way or a Hunsinger way, I'm not sure in the end it matters. Which doesn't stop us fighting about it. So there's a danger. The momentum of, of, of um, refining a technical vocabulary and grammar, and the joy of that for a certain kind of personality type, of the China one, <laughs> that generates a real momentum which is great to the extent that it continues being in touch with the wider life of the church, but has this danger of going beyond that. Now, one of the things I've ended up doing as part of this project is reading a lot of books on the nature of doctrine, and the role of doctrine in the life of the church. You know, after, after Limbeck in 1984 on the nature of doctrine, you get McGrath on the genesis of doctrine, you get um, uh, there's the, the practice of doctrine, the end of doctrine, all sorts of books called the, the X of doctrine. And one of the things that happens in a lot of them is they start in a characteristic way. They start by moaning about the decline of doctrinal seriousness in the life of the church. Not all of them, but quite a few of them will have introductory chapter, more or less headed, grumpy Jeremiah. <laughs> and they'll say, 
The church used to care about this stuff and now it doesn't. And you know where that leads. I have the handbasket, there's the road to hell. We're on our own. And you know, then you get into saying how we're going to save the life of the church by reintroducing or advocating for doctrinal seriousness. The interesting thing about this is that you can find examples of that in all these books since 1984. If you look back at earlier examples, you can find it in the 1940s and 50s, you can find it in the 1890s, the 1860s. Doctrine has always been declining. It's something that everyone who engages in this game at some point falls into saying, which is things used to be better and they're now worse. Doctrine used to be taken seriously and it now isn't. Without wanting to deny that there is any history to tell, changes in in the pattern of this, I want to suggest that the more fundamental reality is a, a perennial distinction which emerges in all sorts of different forms between the people who have been trained in the manipulation of the grammar and and vocabulary um, that emerged from these summarising practices um, and the messier, more unruly, hard to summarise life of the church. There is a distinction between people engaged in this practice and what they Uh, the life of the church as they see it through that practice and the wider life of the church which refuses to line up with that which is just messier which is always less um, intellectually impressive which uh, makes for a less clean edifice than um, what the summarizers find in their books and that ongoing distinction gets reproduced in the lives of individual theologians. Individual um, person gets whisked off to university or to a seminary or at some point, and they you know, get taken out of the church in which they grew up um, and the messy practice that they uh, um, have known for a long time and whose quirks they kind of had a feel for. And they get taken off to university and they learn theology. They learn about. Um, this, these games of, of deployment of vocabulary and grammar and um, get inducted into this sort of way of manipulating summaries and as that happens they're introduced to you know, a wider span of the Christian tradition than they would previously have known almost entirely in the form of books which are clearly articulated So you get someone trained in adopting one part of this ongoing divide I've I've talked about, who knows that the church of the past used to line up much more clearly with the lines of, of academic theology, because look, it's there in the books. You know the past through a filter which only lets you see an intellectually robust church where people really cared about these things all the time. So you emerge from this, you know, wearing the black polo neck or tweed jacket of academe. And you, you know better than the church what the church should believe because you know what it used to believe and because you know the tools that can be used to determine what it can believe. And you look around at the messy and confusing life of the church around you and you inevitably think, oh, it's fallen a long way from those glorious heights of the past. And more than that, you uh, look at the messy and confusing life of the church um, in its normal buzzing complexity and see it 
in one of a variety of ways. You might see what's going on there, the communicative practices that you see there, what's being said, you know, verbally or non-verbally. You might see that as fragments left over from a sort of crumbling of an earlier robust intellectual version of the church. You know, a doctrinally serious church. We're left with bits and pieces left over from that. Or you um, might see it as approximations to doctrinal seriousness, things that ordinary people believe, well, they've sort of got it right, but, you know, if we could train them a bit better, they'd get it properly right. Um, or you uh, might see it as, um, in more negative ways, as you know, a <coughs> turning away from or a throwing away of. But the framing that very often emerges is of seeing this wider life of practice of which, with which we started, the wider life of forms of communication through the lens of, in relation to the, the purer, cleaner version that is handed on in these practices of summarising. Um, it's seen as having flowed from that, well or badly, seen entirely in relation to it. Rather than seeing these practices of summarising, of intellectual manipulation as having value because they emerge within and contribute to that wider confusing buzzing life which is always there and which is always and will always be the reality of the life of the church. We need to explore that a bit more fully but there's a reverse of flow here. Rather than seeing the messy confusing life of the church as a fall away from the church described in books of systematic theology can we see the books of systematic theology as one kind of service to the messy and confusing life of the church, which will always be messy and confusing for good reason? Come back to some of the good reason for that in a moment. Now, note on page says, if running over 20 minutes at this point, skip next section. Skip next section. <laughs> um, I now want to... Um, bring in uh, a little bit of Lindbeck to help us explore this a bit further. Um, as I say, Lindbeck, 1984, wrote a book, Nature of Doctrine, which is a, an odd book, very influential, um, clearly not very well thought through in places, as Lindbeck himself went on to say, and yet sort of infuriatingly persistent in generating this um, whole debate about the nature of doctrine. It's a book I, I thought I'd finished with and dismissed and then went back to to kind of write that up and realised, no, actually, he is unfortunately still really interesting, <laughs> including in the ways he gets some things wrong. And there's a little example in, in, that Limbeck uses, almost in passing, which then generated a whole lot of, of debate. Uh, he's talking about the relationship between doctrine and practice, and he, he throws out this little example. The, the Crusaders' battle cry... Christus est Dominus, is false when used to authorise cleaving the skull of the infidel, even though the same words in other contexts may be a true utterance. When thus employed, when you're cleaving the skull, it contradicts the Christian understanding of lordship, as embodying, for example, suffering servanthood. So the Crusaders' battle cry, Christus est Dominus, is false when used to authorise cleaving the skull of the infidel, even though the same words in other contexts may be a true utterance. This has generated acres of academic print, which I won't bore you with. Um, the thing I want to focus on, well, partly just 
as uh, an initial obvious way in which it makes sense. If you ask, what does this crusader mean by the word Dominus, Lord? And you take your cue from what the crusader is doing at that moment. The crusader clearly thinks that Dominus means something quite likely to do with domination, to do with you know, something that authorises you to go out and kill other people for it. It tells you what the crusader thinks that word means, so what the crusader is intending to say in saying Christus is dominus. And if you think actually Christ's lordship isn't like that, then yes, you'd want to say what the crusader is saying in his context isn't true, using words that can be true if they're given a different interpretation. But in the crusader's context, the crusader is saying Jesus is a tyrant in some form. So you can sort of get the point that Limbeck's trying to make, though even that does seem to be beyond some of the commentators. Um, <laughs> one of the reasons it is difficult to talk about that well is as soon as you start saying, well, yeah, okay, that's fine, but the crusader doesn't exist purely in that moment where he cleaves the crusaders, cleaves the, cleaves the infidels' skull. Limbeck wrote this in 1984 when talking about crusaders killing infidels was just less sensitive. It was really <laughs> uncomfortable. So forgive the intemperate language that goes with this. But he doesn't exist only in that moment. This is someone who presumably you know, got blessed and prayed over in some service before going out to battle. And in that service, scriptures were read. And he was trained up in the faith in ways which involved being integrated into a... a a longer tradition and he was introduced to and may value and, and really care about a set of saints who um, for him uh, you know, are guiding lights in the life of the Christian faith. There are all sorts of contexts surrounding this crusader's practice which might give different meanings to that word dominus if you paid attention to them and it's not that you have to choose between them this is just genuinely complex, and there's no reason to think it's coherent. People on the whole aren't coherent. It's not that you're going to have some neat, symmetrical set of contexts where you can say, well, here's the general things that the Crusader believes, and more specific, and more specific, and then here's a particular thing. No, it's going to be a crazy mess of, of, of contradictory things that the Crusader sort of has in mind, and which you might get at if you were to press at various of the different commitments and involvements that the Crusader has. And it's not unified or, or static. Um, in order to describe what the crusader thinks by <coughs> claiming Christus est Dominus, you'd need the skill of a Proust, kind of unpicking all the different layers of involvement and context going on there. And some of the people who get uncomfortable with the um, Limbeck statement take him to be saying that somehow the, um, the crusader has determined in this one moment what this statement means in these other contexts of which he's a part, that he's sort of um, imposed a meaning and is somehow free to do so on scripture or on the tradition. And <coughs> I don't know what sense to make of that, and that's not what Limbeck is saying. Now, think about the fact that I've just implicitly criticised, well, actually explicitly criticised the crusader. You know, he thinks that Jesus is a tyrant. I don't think that Jesus is a tyrant. I, okay, there's a bit of a historical separation here, but you can imagine me you know, having a counselling session with the Crusader after the battle and saying, actually, we don't say that. Um, <laughs> we prefer you to keep the slaying and the praying just in different ways. Um, now, if all we had was the Crusader uttering this statement in the context of doing his cleaving, 
there'd be no conversation for us to have. It's because that crusader is involved in a messy, wider picture of involvements and commitments that I, as someone who is also involved with some of overlapping commitments, we read the same scriptures, we participate in similar-ish liturgies, even though I'm an Anglican, we um, uh, read some of the same things, we maybe value some of the same... There are going to be all sorts of complex and messy but real overlaps. And it may be that the... Um, if you look at what the Crusader's doing and look at what he takes to be to have some kind of authority over his speech and practice, what he takes to hold him to account outside of himself, um, what he defers to when in those rare reflective moments between battles he asks himself whether he's really doing the right thing or whether he's really saying the right thing, you might find that some of those overlap with forms of accountability that I take myself to be involved in as well. You know, he thinks in some way that what he does on the battlefield should align with what happens in the Eucharists that he attends. And so do I. There's an overlap between our involvements. That's enough to get a conversation going where I can try speaking to him on behalf of some of the contexts in which he's involved and say, look, you did this thing here, but don't you see that this other stuff that you genuinely care about contradicts you. It calls you to something else. I can act as a critic of his action if I can, one way or another, participate in or pick up on and use the forms of accountability in which he takes himself to be involved. Otherwise, all I can do is shout at him and you know, lock him up and try and stop him doing it again. If I'm actually going to be trying to persuade him, I've got to work with the forms of accountability he takes himself to be involved in. Now, um, what about doctrine in that context? Um, if I go up and say, right, rather than just I'm going to talk about how what you just did lined up with the liturgy that you attended this morning, or I'm going to, we're going to read some scripture together, if I start saying, well, look, we need to talk about what kind of claim you were making about the nature of Christ there and Christ's lordship, and maybe we need to think about know how you're understanding God's lordship over the earth and the way you think about creation it's a very unlikely conversation for me to be having with this crusader but you can imagine something like that more or less making sense where we arrange our conversation about the forms of accountability built into the crusader's action around these doctrinal topics these summary statements around which there's a long tradition of people gathering forms of communication bits of speech ideas about the way in which the Christian faith goes together. Because we are sort of embroiled in overlapping ways in the same life, not identically, not necessarily very close together, but nevertheless with real overlaps between the ways in which we're embroiled in all these overlapping contexts, that might make possible something like doctrinal criticism. Um, I don't mean the academic discipline where doctrinal statements from the park have criticised, but using doctrine to critique someone else's statements of belief or action. Um, there's all sorts of complexities here. People suppose themselves to have commitments which when push comes to shove they don't really turn out to have. Um, you know, all sorts of the bits of this conversation might turn out to be uh, irrelevant even though I think they ought to be relevant. You know, there are all sorts of complexities. You can imagine real conversations taking that form. 
This still leaves us in the realm where I, as doctrinal critic, because of my knowledge of, the, of the, this long tradition of summarising and my, my training in, in sort of knowledge of the Christian tradition, can criticise this other practitioner. The flow is still very much from me and my knowledge to the criticism of the ordinary practitioner. Um, made sense of the Crusaders' action, what he was saying in, in relation to the sort of local web of stuff surrounding him. I'm now coming in on behalf of the wider web that he takes himself to be part of and saying, well, let's check that what you're doing here and the local practices in which you're involved line up properly with this wider web. I come in as the sort of representative of the wider web, the older tradition, the ecumenical consensus of the church, name it how you will. As if the questions were, how can I ensure that this practitioner over here says what we, the wider church, always say and does what we always do. Checking that the crusader has lined up properly. Now, I don't think that can be the whole story. That still leaves the flow unidirectional. So, though I'm going to have to skip another section in a moment because I'm just talking too much. Think about... Forget the crusader now. Think about me being in a church context where I learn to say, Jesus is Lord. I pick this as the example, not just because it's parallel to Limbeck's example, but because I take it to be, and it is widely held to be, the sort of the er doctrine, the core doctrine from which all other doctrines flow. And that's a slightly odd statement to make, but I think you can give, make good, reasonably good sense of it. So Jesus is Lord, take that as our statement. I... Um, I'm a member of some local church, part of the wider church. I may or may not actually utter those words very frequently, but I am taught, you know, the teaching may not have taken very well, but I am in principle taught to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, to, to, to believe, to say, to sing things that, that relate to that. I've been inducted into a life, internalised ways of speaking, learnt to imitate other people, um, learning to pass as a native in a community which takes Jesus to be Lord. And I learned to say Jesus is Lord, that sentence if I do end up saying it, as some kind of summary statement, summarising the commitment that holds this body of people together. Um, I might even have learned some of it by explicit doctrinal catechesis. I'd be people who were drawing on those summary statements, you know, arranging um, the rest of the teaching life of the church around them. But if I try to live that out, my living out of discipleship, of acknowledgement of the Lordship of Christ, will never simply be an application of that summary. I can never simply say, right, I've now been taught the right statements, Jesus is Lord and some other statements which kind of fill that out. I've got a situation in which I need to behave as a disciple. I will simply apply that stuff. That's not how the life of Christian faith works or ever works. And there are two reasons for that. One is simply that those summary statements are only one of the kinds of things that people say and do in the life of this church, as I said right at the beginning. I've learned my faith in a way more complicated and rich way. And I may think I can summarise, I, I may be deluded enough to think I can summarise the whole faith in terms of summary statements, but actually the faith I've learned goes beyond that, it exceeds those. These are simply one kind of statement made within the life that has been passed on to me. And when I act, try to act as a disciple in some context, I'll actually be drawing on a much wider range of stuff 
than simply the explicit summary statements that I think I'm applying. So life is never simply the application of doctrine, partly because of sort of the richness of what we bring to it. It's never simply the application of doctrine also because any given context always exceeds systematicity. Any particular moment, any context in which I'm behaving is always more than can be grasped by uh, a clear analysis. There is always more to any given situation. If I had a bit more time, we could dig into that a little bit. But that means that our action takes the form of improvisation, of working with what we've received in situations that are not identical to the ones that we've encountered before, which are not identical to the situations we've imagined as we've learnt what we've received. We're always having to respond to things we haven't yet learned how to respond to, sometimes in small-scale ways, sometimes in large-scale ways. One way of putting this is that rather than thinking that you've got a nice stable body of the church and then odd things happening at the edges, think of the life of the church as all edge. We are all always in the context where we are learning to apply the faith in ways which go beyond what we knew before, subtly or more dramatically. That means that our ongoing activity, well, you can both say negatively that it exceeds what we've captured in our practices of summarising, could also see it as an ongoing exploration, good or bad, of what following Jesus can be, of what acknowledging Jesus as Lord might mean. It's an ongoing exploration in practice of what worship, discipleship, witness can mean. If I, as doctrinal theologian, now sit down and say, what does this doctrine, Jesus is Lord, mean? Well, I'm asking what, how to understand that statement. If I want to understand that statement, I need to be able to elaborate it. Understanding has to do with elaboration, your ability to, in response to various kinds of queries, say what it goes with, what it doesn't go with, to articulate it. Um, or perhaps to display what it goes with and doesn't go with if we're um, thinking about the ways in which that happens in practice as well as in, in talk. My, my life, including what I say, shows what I take this claim, Jesus is Lord, to mean. Um, I, as doctrinal theologian, trying to understand what Jesus is Lord means, part of the... Um, material I'm working with is what the whole life of the church around me does by way of exploring that statement. We've got a whole life which as I've just said is people learning how to live that out in new contexts, how to apply it in new ways, learning what it means for them in new places to live in response to Jesus as Lord. You can think of all that, this messy and confusing life of the church always happening at the edge and the church is all edges think of that as an ongoing unruly uncontrollable elaboration of what jesus is lord means it's not an application of this thing so we've got the statement and that's fine and now all we need to do is put it into practice it is an ongoing discovery of what that statement can mean
Now, I am pretty close to the end, so let's get that that piece of paper has come across. <laughs> guilty, guilty. Um, I skipped a little bit, so I just want to... What then, in the light of that kind of picture, is the ministry of summarising, of arranging things around summary statements, of caring about the connections between those, of exploring the history of that? What's that, the activity of doctrinal theology, for? What is the presence of people capable of deploying these kinds of, of, of summaries? What's it for? Well, these summaries do offer some kinds of boundaries for our improvisations. I say to the crusader, no, actually, that really doesn't work. That is beyond the bounds that have been explored and discovered by the church over time. You know, we know, most of us know or should know, that actually the sword cleaving bit is an inappropriate way of understanding what lordship means and what it requires. That's not the right way to go about living out what Jesus' lord should mean. So, you know, if I'm the doctrinal critic and can call the, the um, crusader to account, then yes, there's that practice, that ability to call to account on behalf of the wider church. There is some kind of exploring, bringing into view, drawing attention to boundaries that have been discovered in the life of the church for our improvisations, part of holding each other to account in various ways. It's one specific way of holding each other to account for what we say. But the life, the wider life, without the doctrine would lack a certain set of safeguards. It's true. It would lack a certain set of safeguards and supports. Doctrine, this practice of summarising and hanging on, without the wider life, would be a weightless simulacrum of faith. That's one bit I'm reading out because I like the phrase, it's probably a bit overdone. Um, so the life without the doctrine would be a life that lacked something valuable. It would lack a certain kind of set of ways in which attention could be drawn to boundaries that have been discovered over time to appropriate improvisation. Doctrine without the life would be a weightless simulacrum of faith. You know, the paper church, which bears a partial relationship an inadequate relationship to the actual life of the church. Doctrinal theology is useful but limited. In fact, it's useful because it's limited. Its task is, if done well, to highlight certain structures, certain limits, by isolating them from the mess. It turns away from the wider mess for the sake of the wider mess, to draw attention to certain structures um, within it. It speaks on behalf of, a, of the history of this messy life of the church, drawing attention to certain turns of the plot, certain shapes which have, been which have turned out to be important for keeping the whole show on the road, in order to help keep that whole show faithful to its lord, speaks out of a history of improvisation and exploration. Doctrinal criticism probably isn't needed much of the time, but it can play that role. But in order to play that role well, the doctrinal theologian has to be attending to the ongoing improvisations of the church, not simply seeing those as fragments or falls from the purity of doctrine, but to see how doctrine, how Jesus is Lord, how the idea of God as the creator is actually being explored and articulated in that wider life, asking whether there is something I as doctrinal theologian need to hear that should enrich, question, challenge my existing articulation 
lead me towards different ways of elaborating what those statements involve and therefore what they mean. I may come across an improvisation and decide ultimately that it is simply a distortion. That happens. Witness the Crusader. It may expose internal tensions between the multiple contexts in which I'm involved, which will need some kind of resolution, some kind of deciding of priorities. It may force me to reconstruct my account of what's deeper in Christian faith and what's shallower. It may show me new and more satisfying ways of putting things together, of articulating my account. The process of ongoing corporate improvisation I've been describing is a process of discovering what our doctrinal statements mean, which goes beyond what any of us can know they mean simply by reading them in their paper form. There is a sense in which we don't yet know what we mean when we say Jesus is Lord. Mastery of that kind of statement is simply not available to us. Truth is something we are being drawn into drawn up into God, out into the world. And doctrine, if it's valuable at all, is valuable only because it's one kind of assistance on that journey, not because it provides the answers or the end point. Thank you.